1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Rich, who is the author of the new book, State Sponsored Activism, Bureaucrats and Social Movements in Democratic Brazil. This book is coming out just now from Cambridge University Press, and it is a broad and complex analysis of an understanding of AIDS policy um, in Brazil both the social movement leading to the policy itself and then the implementation and sustained movement around AIDS policy in Brazil. But I will let Jessica explain that to us. Now I'd like to introduce Jessica Rich and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project.
0: Thank you, Lily, for having me. It's so exciting to Be here um, live and in person recording this with you. Face to face. Uh, (laughs) um, And it's also very exciting to be here with you doing my very first promotional event for this book since this book is technically officially coming out six days from now.
1: Fabulous.
0: Yes. Um, So, who am I? Uh, I'm Jessica Rich. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Marquette University. Prior to that I spent a couple of years at the Wonderful Center for Inter-American Policy and, and Research at Tulane University and then I did my PhD at UC Berkeley. My main research and teaching interests center on social policy and social movements and NGOs and also bureaucrats and bureaucracy. Great. And
1: so this project that that you sort of drew you to Brazil um, and also social movements in particular in Brazil, how did you come to sort of your interests in Latin America in general, but Brazil in particular?
0: Um, My interest in NGOs and social movements actually came from When I was spending some time in Brazil, I was spending about half a year in Brazil in 2002, which was just before the Workers' Party President Lula da Silva was elected to power. And this was a time in which there was this boom in the number of NGOs, not only across Latin America, but across the developing world. And it was a really exciting time, full of a lot of optimism for people who are from marginalized communities of various stripes, but there was very little information about what these NGOs were actually doing and how effective they were. And so I became interested, this was before I started graduate school, in looking at NGOs and getting some real data on what it was that they were actually doing in the world and um, what made the effective ones effective um, and, you know, why others were less effective.
1: And you have a really fascinating story, essentially, in this book about the development of AIDS policy, AIDS, HIV policy in Brazil, and not only the development of the policy itself, but the implementation, and then the sustained nature of that implementation and the social movements around it. That's the sort of crux, the thesis of your book. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the component parts of that story um, and why it's also unique
0: Yeah, absolutely. So fast forward, uh, I started graduate school and then I I went out to work on my um, PhD dissertation, which ultimately became this book. And I ended up working in Brazil, not necessarily because I was set on working in Brazil. But within Latin America, Brazil is such a large country, and it was actually the country with the largest number of NGOs. So in a world with very little data, Brazil was a very good country to go to because there, there was a lot of social movement activism that had happened in the 80s and a very large number of NGOs. So um, when I went to Brazil, my so this book is about the AIDS movement mainly, although I look at three other social movements at the end of the book. But my original driving interest was more – About NGOs in general. And later I came to be really interested in HIV AIDS policy and public health policy itself. Um, But when I came to Brazil, I started looking at these um, HIV AIDS NGOs because they were known as being among the most successful within Brazil. So I thought, well, let's look at an example of. Um, an area in which there are more NGOs. Maybe I'll get some, I actually have some concrete data on these NGOs and I would like to look at a case of success. Um, But my original design was actually uh, comparative in a subnational way. So the idea at the time Was that you've got a lot of NGOs, but mainly they work at the local level now, because all politics is local, um, not only in the traditional sense, but also in the sense that decentralization was the big buzzword. And so the, the assumption at the time was that national government was much less of a player in politics than it was before. And so... Um, subnational comparisons were starting to flourish because the idea was that mayors and governors were really the politicians who mattered. And so my idea was to look at AIDS NGOs across four different states in Brazil and to compare the effect of partisanship essentially on who participated and how effective they were. And so I looked at two states that were dominated by the left and two states that were dominated by the right or center right And my expectation was that you would find some significant differences. Um, But what I found was really surprising, which is that although there were differences, these differences were much smaller than I had imagined. And I also started noticing as I participated in a lot of meetings with AIDS NGOs that national-level bureaucrats were floating around these meetings all the time. And when I went to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil – I also started seeing these local level activists coming into the National AIDS Program office, people I had met in various states of Brazil. Um, and so the story that I end up telling in my book was very different than the story I set out to tell at the beginning. And and
1: part of that story that you talk about in the book is, is about the fact that the cleavages that you expected to see we're actually in different places. Um, and we talk about this a lot in the social sciences where, where we see the separation between groups or entities or institutions. Um, and you expected to see this kind of national, subnational sort of distinction. But what you found was novel. Can you talk about what it was that you found and why it was novel?
0: Yeah. What I found was an incredibly strong alliance between national level bureaucrats and what you could call local level activists. And it was novel um, because usually when we think about the relationship between social movements and the state, we either think of a relationship of opposition, at least in the context of Latin America, where there's a very long history of state repression against social movements, we either see a relationship of opposition, or we think of ties between social movements and political parties. So the vast majority of political science literature that looks at links between social movements and the state, they look at political parties. What I found in Brazil is that the relevant alliance is not with political parties at all. It's with bureaucrats inside the state. And they're bureaucrats who are policy experts who really care about pushing forward new kinds of policies, um, particularly social policies, that have discovered that they can't actually get anything done on their own without support from outside the state. And so they've begun giving training and resources to activist organizations outside government in order to empower civil society to better be able to put pressure on government to continue to push forward policy.
1: And that the cleavage was between certain state actors who were working with the civil society groups and the NGOs um, and the AIDS policy sort of movements and other state actors
0: who were opposed. Is that correct? Absolutely. The relevant cleavage is among different actors inside the state. So you've got bureaucrats in new state agencies who are trying to form new social policies that never existed in Latin America before. And then you've got legislators. In particular, in this case, the opposition came from the evangelical caucus who had a very different um, vision of what AIDS policy should look like. You also have opposition from within the executive branch between these national level bureaucrats who are designing these national policies and governors and mayors who are in charge of implementing policies And you even have opposition from other state agencies who might not share the same vision as these these bureaucrats. So what I do in my book is I lay out this vision of a heterogeneous state in which there are many different kinds of actors, all of whom operate with some degree of autonomy, but none of whom can get things done on their own without convincing other parts of the state either to go along with them or at least to not actively oppose what they're doing.
1: And so can we take that sort of institutional framework and understanding and, and then take up the, essentially the case study that is the centerpiece of your book, the AIDS, HIV policy. So it, it sort of is going on at the same time. That you you also note that there's movements in other parts of the developing world around AIDS HIV policy and that this was also a distinct success in Brazil compared to other policy areas, even in healthcare. So can you talk a little bit about AIDS HIV policy in Brazil and what you're looking at over this you know close to sort of 15, 20 year period?
0: Absolutely. Brazil's AIDS policy is is um, incredibly impressive when you look worldwide at different national sets of policies around HIV and AIDS when compared to most other countries in the world, including compared to the United States of America. Brazil was not only an early leader, In setting out a set of AIDS policies that really cared for people who had AIDS in the sense of Brazil was one of the first countries in the world to guarantee access to treatment. So that's antiretroviral drugs for people with HIV. They did this in the mid-1990s, and that's regardless of whether people can pay. But Brazil was also a leader in a number of other ways um, that have garnered less recognition. So many people know about Brazil being pathbreaking in guaranteeing access to ARVs. or at least people who study HIV in the world. But what a lot of people don't know is that Brazil was also pathbreaking in setting out needle exchange programs, for example. This is something that was actually federal funding for needle exchange programs was actually banned in the United States until very recently. Brazil started funding these programs in the mid-1990s. Brazil was also one of the first countries in the world to make protecting the human rights of people with HIV a centerpiece of its national policies. Brazil is also one of the countries in the world that distributes the largest number of condoms. Um,
1: And so the, the success of the AIDS policy is built on unexpected, in your research, unexpected sort of groupings together of individuals in different parts of institutions, either inside the government or outside the government?
0: Yeah, actually, so I do explain this initial success on AIDS policy somewhat in my book, but what I'm really interested in looking at is not this initial success. It's at how Brazil sustained its success over time, which is a story that hasn't been told before, but is just as Remarkable, And this is where AIDS policy starts to look even more spectacular because public health in Brazil is another area that's very well known for being a particular area of success and in an area in which there was a very active social movement pushing the government for change. But over time, AIDS policy actually fared much better in Brazil than other areas of public health. And so I look at why that is and Part of what I say is that the reason is that somewhat hidden behind the scenes, there has been a very active social movement that has been critical to sustaining Brazil's AIDS policy success, um, despite constant challenges from the legislature, from governors, and from mayors.
1: So, so how was Brazil able to sustain this successful policy? Um, because there was opposition, but as you point out throughout the book, you know, the, the novelty of your research also is the fact that oftentimes the, the social movements fall apart or they just sort of disband after the policy is achieved. And what you talk about is not only did they not dissolve or disintegrate, but they continued to work in lots of ways to sustain a successful policy.
0: Yeah, um- you know, part of what I describe, in the case of AIDS policy in Brazil, is I look at the hidden dynamics behind a number of policy successes over time. And when I talk about a policy success, it's either in pushing forward a new policy that promotes access to ARVs and and this the the original vision of HIV AIDS policy that Brazil adopted or I consider success to be blocking a policy that would actively dismantle the policy that previously existed. And what I show is that behind almost all of the legislation that pushes forward AIDS policy, you see congressional AIDS caucuses. And in fact, it was members of the AIDS movement, it was advocacy organizations that organized all of these congressional AIDS caucuses. If you look at the large number of judicial decisions that have reinforced Brazil's HIV/AIDS policy, you see briefs that have been filed by AIDS advocacy groups. And so, one of the things that I show is that this set of advocacy groups, this social movement, was not only essential in um, in a disruptive way in pushing for radical change in the first place, in getting Brazil to adopt its initial set of policies, but it has also been in a slightly more hidden way. Really essential to help sustain AIDS policy over time
1: and and so in in terms of some of the other novel un, um, research that you found um, you also talk about the fact that the social movement got some philanthropic donations early on but that this was not what was sustaining either the sort of thrust of the movement or its continued success.
0: Yeah, one of the so you know that finding that there are all sorts of semi-hidden roles that these advocacy groups have continued to play over time opens up another question, which is how is it that the AIDS movement managed to sustain itself? Because sustaining a movement over time requires resources, and nonprofit organizations, not only in Brazil and in much of the developing world, but even the in the United States, are famously resource. Poor. And as we know, providing services takes a lot of time and energy, and most nonprofit organizations don't have extra money and oftentimes extra time for advocacy. And so it's a puzzle as to why Brazil's AIDS movement has been able to sustain advocacy over time. And in addition to using the courts and, and organizing congressional caucuses, they also continue to protest on the streets. Um, and. What I find is that the way that the AIDS movement not only was able to sustain its advocacy, but actually able to grow to become a more national movement in scope than it was before, to grow into new states of Brazil, more rural states, poorer states, states in which civil society had traditionally been very weak. The reason this happened is that national level bureaucrats who knew that they couldn't get things done on their own had been providing Resources to civic advocacy groups, not just money for organizations to provide services, but they'd actually been providing resources them for them to explicitly engage in political advocacy. And even more importantly, these bureaucrats were providing resources to help them organize themselves into a national coalition. So they were paying for the monthly meetings for these advocacy groups to come together. They were paying for their their every two-year regional meetings, and they were paying for their national meeting, um, which is where they were able to coordinate as a national
1: movement. You said they even also paid for lunch occasionally too.
0: Lunch, dinner, <laughs>
1: breakfast, uh, plane tickets, hotels, everything. I mean, as I was reading through the discussion of what you talk about, it's like, wow, this seems like so out of the sphere of what you usually think about in terms of what state bureaucrats do Um, that, that, you know, we don't usually think about this as something that comes from the federal government or the state government um, in terms of a policy area. Um, But it's a really interesting tension that you sort of tease out within the state bureaucracy um, between those who really were pushing on this policy area and trying to, sort of fortify them, their position against those inside the bureaucracy who are pushing against it. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, what you also saw in your research with regard to, um, essentially different regions of the country and how they operated within this policy,
0: this particular policy dynamic. That's a great question, um, And I have two answers to that, because there are important differences across regions. But my original findings are what I'd like to start with, because my original findings is that these regional differences were less than what I had expected. So initially, the AIDS movement essentially started off in four states of Brazil. So when you look at the initial mobilization in the early to mid-1980s, I'm sure there were some exceptions, but they were mainly in um, more industrialized cosmopolitan areas. And so it was just a very narrow movement when you think in terms of geography. And one of the surprising things was that over time, after the AIDS movement had ch- achieved its dramatic success in convincing the national government to set up such a progressive set of policy guidelines, it was after the success that the movement started to really expand nationally into new states and new regions of Brazil and within the states they had already existed in, into new communities as well. And usually this expansion occurred into more poor and more rural areas. So while there are important differences regionally, one of the most surprising findings was that there was an AIDS movement in very rural regions covered by desert and or jungle that had traditionally been dominated by, you know, old um, traditional elites um, and where clientelism was running Rampant, So that was really interesting to me that the movement was not only present, but organized. And those rural areas were connected up to the movement in other states as well through this national coalition. That said, there are, of course, important differences across regions, and the movement remains much stronger in the wealthiest regions of Brazil that are also the regions that had the longest histories of AIDS activism. Um, which, you know, these are important differences, but there are also differences that we would expect based on what we already know of how social movements and how activism works.
1: So you talk about in the book sort of some of your framing is within the understanding of how developing countries and in particular Brazil operated and were analyzed as either being corporatists or then pluralist, but you suggest a new way of looking at this, a new framing of civic corporatism. Can you talk about what you mean by that, especially in context of these other analytical frames?
0: Absolutely. So corporatism was a big buzzword among people who studied Latin American politics for a very long time. And that's in part because Latin, many countries in Latin America had a history of um, fairly repressive governments that were able to control civil society. And so in Latin America, traditionally, you see a very strong state and a very weak civil society. And so the concept of corporatism has a slightly different connotation when you think about Latin America than it does when you think about Europe. So when we think about corporatism, we think about a relationship between The state, government, labor, and business. And in Latin America, labor was always the junior player. And so while labor movements in Latin America got very important resources from government, they got resources in terms of laws that helped them collect union dues, that helped these unions and these labor movements sustain themselves. They also got important access to national policymaking meetings, But the trade-off for this access is that there were very strong controls on what they could do. And corporatism, in one sense, was a way for government to control civil society because a strong civil society that was also autonomous is naturally a threat. If you think of of government as a unitary actor, if you think of government as mainly politicians, then civil society that is able to do what it wants If you support civil society to help you when your policy goals are aligned, civil society, if it's strong and autonomous, could then turn back around and put pressure on government. And so it was very important, even when corporatist governments were mobilizing civil society, that they also were able to control what these civic organizations did. What I talk about is a little bit different Because similarly, you see a relationship of mutual dependence emerging um, in Brazil, but I would also argue across Latin America, but this book is about Brazil, between civil society organizations and state actors. But the organizations that I'm looking at are different kinds of organizations, both within civil society, because we're not talking about labor unions anymore. We're talking about new groups in civil society that never before had a political voice. This is a very wide array of groups, some of which are class-based groups, right? So they could be um, workers groups like waste pickers organizations. These are extraordinarily marginalized employment categories, but it would be a work-based group. Or you could have rights um, identity-based groups like LGBT organizations. Um, In my case, I'm looking at AIDS groups. So we're still looking at civil society groups, but there's an incredibly wide array of civic organizations that now exist that were just never politically relevant before. So that's one difference from the old form of corporatism. But at the same time, the actors in the state are different because you've now got bureaucrats inside the state who are new bureaucrats, who work in new government agencies that never existed before. So primarily when you think about development back in um, the the mid 20s 20th century, you're mainly thinking of industrial policy or labor policy. Well, now the state is much broader. Now there are all sorts of social policies that never existed before. There are all sorts of rights-based policies that never existed before. And you have new kinds of bureaucrats who work in these agencies. And so there are new relationships that I trace in the book of mutual dependence between state and society, but there are different kinds of actors. And so the, the incentives, are somewhat different. And in this case one of the important differences is that these bureaucrats who are helping to mobilize civil society one of the main quote unquote enemies that they confront or I would say opposition not enemies is from within the state itself. And so it's actually not necessarily negative for them to have a relatively autonomous civil society turning around and putting pressure on the state because they might be turning around and putting pressure on different parts of the state. Uh,
1: To affect change, or to sort of push on the state to produce what it what the civil society wants in the policy areas.
0: That's exactly it. This isn't to say that that in the vision that I trace out civil society is totally autonomous. I think that would be an unfair characterization but I do think that there's a greater degree of autonomy because in order for these bureaucrats to be empowered by the social movement that's pushing for change, this social movement or the set of advocacy groups, at least it needs to have a veneer of legitimacy. They need to be seen as legitimate representatives of society. And so that means that these bureaucrats will sometimes, and I show this in the book, they'll accept these social movements protesting against these very bureaucrats who are funding them. Because they know that their overarching goals depend on an active and mobilized civil society. And so,
1: in a certain sense, this is a really interesting picture of like the role of the people um in terms of pushing on the government and having the government in some quadrant sort of helping uh, push that, even if as you say, they're sort of pushing on the same bureaucrats who are helping them because then the general, Popular opinion is seeing this sort of broad emphasis and advocacy in particular direction. Is that right?
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: And and so I wanted to take you a little bit through the book itself. You you go through and you're, you know you have the, your introduction, but then you you go through the, your sort of theoretical structure in the second third chapter and also a little bit towards the end. Um, can you just take us through an overview of you know how you laid out the research and um, and what what you know you also talk particularly about how you did the research, um, your survey and your interviews and engagement with, um, various groups and bureaucrats and so forth. So can you just take us through a little bit of an overview of the structure of the book?
0: Absolutely. Do you mean like chapter by chapter or do you mean where the theoretical debates lie? Some of
1: the the theoretical debates, but also where your research sort of weaves into that.
0: Okay, Sure. The way in which i I frame the argument, um, so I'll answer that question first, and then I'll talk about how I went about doing the research. Maybe, maybe that answer will flow from this first answer. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, so the way in which I frame the set of debates is is I, I framed my book in terms of debates about state society relations. So um, there are a couple of stories in this book. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it's a story about policymaking and how you sustain policy change over time. And on the other hand, it's a story about social movements and NGOs and state society relations. And so in the theoretical framing, I I mainly privilege the set of literature about state society relations in Latin America. And I go through the different ways in which people have thought about civic advocacy And state society relations, and I and I do this sort of historically, where I talk about the whole traditional literature on corporatism, in which you had a strong state that helped to sustain labor unions, but were very controlling of them. And then I move forward into our traditional vision of what then happened to these corporatist relationships. And two things happened in the 1980s and 1990s across Latin America but not only in Latin America, this was first the third wave of democracy. So these military regimes um, disappeared and now you had formal democratic institutions. And this was seen as a very good thing for social movement activism, because now at the very least, these organizations could protest and make demands on government without fear of repression. So this was seen as to be a really big deal. The second thing that happened was neoliberal reforms. And there are two thoughts about this. The one thought is that this also helped to spark social movement activism because it gave citizens new grievances, in particular workers who had lost their jobs. And so there's a large amount of literature on new social movements in Latin America that look at the effect of democratization and neoliberalism on the formation of new movements what this literature doesn't look at is what happened to these movements over time. So you see the formation of new movements and the assumption is that these movements will be short lived because in the absence of actual financial resources to sustain them, there's no way that they can sustain mobilization over time. And those who do look at resources have a sort of negative story to tell because Suddenly, there's a new, there's less government resources for civic organizations, but there's an influx of international resources for civic organizations. So, donor funding is a big deal now in Latin America, in Sub Saharan Africa, across the developing world. But the general thought about the effects of donor funding on NGOs is that they help NGOs provide services because usually this is earmarked funding to do a project. It's a service project. But that it actually has a very demobilizing effect because this funding has to be constantly renewed. This funding doesn't cover any overhead. It doesn't cover project staff. And it is for a very specific service-related purpose. And so the idea is that these tiny NGOs are so strapped looking for new funding um, and trying to provide the services that the donors want them to provide that they have no time, energy, or resources for actual advocacy. And so what I say is that in a traditional view, it's hard to explain how some of these social movements in Brazil actually have sustained advocacy over time. And this book is about the AIDS movement in Brazil, but I take three other movements in the concluding chapter to show that the AIDS movement is actually not unique in this respect. If you look slightly underneath the surface, there are actually many social movements in Brazil composed of NGOs, of nonprofits, that continue to do advocacy. Um, so, what I do is I look at why, and that's where I bring in a different literature and this is the literature on bureaucracy and state capacity, which has a slightly different view there's a number of new um, books and articles um, not only new but newish to new um, those that look at the state tend to have a slightly different view um, and And there there are other pieces that look at the state as this more fragmented, heterogeneous entity. And so I draw from that literature and I draw from that literature to look at the motivations of these actors in the state vis-a-vis civil society. So whereas a lot of the literature on bureaucracy and state capacity is interested in explaining state capacity, what I'm doing is I'm taking this literature and I'm using it to explain the development of civil society.
1: And, and so just to give a little bit of an overview of what your research entailed in terms of like on the ground research, you attended many meetings, you were all over Brazil in terms of, you know, attending NGO meetings and talking to bureaucrats, but you also did a massive survey. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of on the ground research that you did to pull this study together?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The majority of my research was interview and observational based, although I also conducted a study, I mean, um, a survey. And the, um, the survey was interesting and I think important, but my most interesting insights came from my interviews and observations. And that's because what I talk about is just underneath the surface. And so there are no quantitative measures that capture the dynamics that I talk about, and in fact, if you just interviewed and spent a small amount of time with these bureaucrats, you would never know this story because, um, you know, the 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 way in which bureaucrats have been supporting social movements for their own purposes is was kind of an open secret for a long time. So there are certainly documents that you can collect, and I and I found all of the information on the different lines of project funding for political advocacy, you have to know where to look. Um, So I set my research mainly in the states of Rio and Sao Paulo, because that's where you had the largest number of NGOs. Um, But I also went to six other states in Brazil to look at differences across states. And one of the most interesting things that I noticed is that I could have set all of my research in Rio and Sao Paulo and Brasilia, because these NGO activists from other parts of Brazil were constantly all together for a, a never-ending series of meetings and, and events. Um, so... Yeah, the way I went about my research is I was trying to do this local level or this sub-national, state-level project. And as I was attending these state-level meetings, I kept seeing these national-level bureaucrats. And so I ended up talking to these national-level bureaucrats. Um, and I also started doing my interviews asking these state-level activists about their interactions with state-level government officials. But they kept bringing up these national-level Bureaucrats. Um, so it was very interesting to see my my um, my story evolve. And it was also very important for me to have conducted such a large amount of participant observation as well because uh, I started changing my questions based on the dynamics that i I was seeing. And these bureaucrats, um, these national level bureaucrats who were attending the meetings, they took much stronger roles than I had imagined and the exchange of information that I was witnessing between these local level activists and these national bureaucrats was explicitly political and these are some the, the, these are these were incredibly interesting observations that I don't think the activists would have revealed to me on their own um, had I not already witnessed what was occurring and then got them to elaborate on that you were sitting in meetings basically yes. Yeah. One of the most interesting meetings I sat in on and I won't reveal where this was, um, but this was in a state in which the the um, health secretary of the state had it was just found out that had that the health secretary had basically stolen a large amount of funding that was supposed to be for AIDS NGOs. And this was a state that, that everybody knew the, the governor and the health, the health secretary in particular were incredibly corrupt. And so in one of the monthly meetings that, uh, the, that the AIDS NGOs had with the state-level bureaucrats, the state-level bureaucrat basically said – I can't remember who it was. Uh, it was either the bureaucrat or the NGO. They said, we need to have an extraordinary meeting. Here's what we're going to do. And they organized another meeting. That was in a town that was an hour and a half outside the capital city, and they got a government van to transport all of these advocacy organizations to the meeting. And a couple of the bureaucrats from the state-level AIDS program came to the meeting as well, and I managed to push my way into getting invited. And I sat in this meeting in which they conducted um, or they constructed uh, an advocacy strategy for pressuring the secretary and the governor to give them their money back.
1: And it worked, I assume. And it worked. All right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, But I also conducted a survey and um, the survey was because I was very interested in looking at where, where the funding for these organizations came from, you know, who were they dependent on? How much of their money came from government versus private organizations versus donations? How professionalized were these organizations? How many, how much resources did they have? And, um, I don't think interviews are the best way of getting that information or you, and you can't always trust that that information's accurate. And I still can't trust that my information's totally accurate, but at least I can, you know, uh, look at both what they told me in my interviews and how they responded in a larger scale anonymous survey. And also with the survey, I was able to get a, a, a larger number of organizations to respond. So I had a slightly larger sample um, to be able to draw my inferences from.
1: And so you, you, you mentioned that at the end of the book, you're also comparing a couple other case studies to this one. Can you just, um, mention what those are and, and where the parallels were?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a reasonable question that I got throughout when I was conducting the study was, well, this is just a story about AIDS policy. Um, how generalizable is it? And on the one hand, AIDS policy is really astounding in Brazil and the AIDS movement is among one of the most successful movements. That's certainly true, but it's also not unique. There are a range of social movements in Brazil composed of civil society organizations, NGOs, nonprofits who do this kind of work as well. And who have these kinds of relationships with bureaucrats, but this story hasn't been written before. And so in the conclusion, I draw from three other movements just to make the the brief case that this is this is a broader phenomenon this is not just with AIDS policy, and we need to look more into these semi hidden relationships between bureaucrats and advocacy organizations. So I look at uh, three other movements, and I draw from other research that other people have done. Uh, one is the waste pick is with waste pickers organizations. So um, you know Brazil is really interesting in part because during the the opening of um, political institutions during democratization, there's such a wide new range of social movements organizing. And there's there are movements that we as Americans here would never think about, um, right? So waste picking, this is very common in Brazil, but also across the developing world. This is when you pick recyclable materials out of trash, and then you go and you recycle them for a profit. And it's incredibly dangerous work. Um, you could fall into a trash pile and suffocate. You could um, injure yourself because of toxic materials. It's a very stigmatized profession, but they actually, I mean, it also, it's also a work environment that breeds solidarity because you're in a kind of awful place for long periods of time. And so they were one of the social movements that mobilized in the eighties and they were incredibly successful in pressuring government to give a response. Um, the, President Cardoso, uh, uh, sort of from a centrist party, um, actually officially recognized waste picking as an employment category. President Lula, when the Workers Party, the left-wing party, came to power in the early 2000s, created a special secretariat just to coordinate – Support for waste pickers. And so suddenly you have new kinds of bureaucrats going into government who care about the goals of waste pickers, who want to push forward supportive policies for waste pickers, who are confronting strong opposition from business interests, and who start to give um, funding and some training to these activists outside the state to help them. So that's one example. I also take the example of. public prosecutors who work for traditional communities, who work for the environment, who work for traditional communities who live in the jungle. Um, And the third case I look at, what is the third case that I look at? Uh, Environment waste. Oh, uh, low-income housing. Oh, also, so this was another really fascinating movement that um, that emerged it was part of the, um, it was a part of a, a coordinated set of movements that was trying to promote better city planning um, that looked at a wider range of people from different income scales and so um, the low-income housing movement was one of them and a very and a new government program was created specifically to set up low-income housing and also to incorporate, civil society organizations in the design of these houses. So three very different kinds of movements, but all of which had really interesting alliances between civil society organizations and new kind of bureaucrats inside the state.
1: And they had been developed in part, as you say, because these various areas had also been recently recognized by the government as being something that the government needed to pay attention to. So the bureaucrats inside were younger, newer.
0: That's exactly it. That, that, that's another story within the stories that I tell. Um, there have been a number of really great studies of social policy in Latin America that have come out recently. Um, upending our thinking about social policy progression. Some of these studies have made the case that social policy isn't even just a left-wing phenomenon. Even center and center-right governments were expanding social policy in Brazil, and that's in part because democracy matters. What these studies don't tend to look at is the effects on... um, the composition of the state. So part of what happened when you promise these new social policies is that you actually have to create new bureaucracies to implement them. And so what happened then is that you have new kinds of bureaucrats entering the state, and this has all sorts of interesting implications for state-society relations.
1: So is that your next project, or why don't you tell me what it is you're working on next, Jessica?
0: Oh, yes. uh, Actually, it is. (laughs) It is. <laughs> so my new project is is looking into uh it is looking at similar dynamics but from a more central um standpoint of looking at these bureaucracies in Brazil and in particular looking at new social po- policy bureaucracies that tend to work better than expected. So when we think of Brazilian bureaucracy we don't think of committed policy experts who can do really creative things with their budgets. That's the opposite of what we think about when we think of Brazilian bureaucracy. But in reality, a lot of these new social policy programs have functioned quite well, have very committed and capable people working for them who have enough control of their budgets that they can do these really creative things. So in this book, I had one answer as to why you found such a highly functioning bureaucracy in the AIDS policy sector. And that led me to want to do more research more broadly to see if this was the same answer in other areas of government. And what I found was that there's essentially a shadow arm of the state that works within the national AIDS program, but also in many other policy areas. These are bureaucrats that are Brazilian bureaucrats, but aren't. That operate within Brazil's government rules, but don't, and that's because the way in which agents, the directors of these new agency, these new agencies, have been able to make their programs function, is that they've been taking out technical cooperation agreements with United Nations agencies, um, in order to essentially outsource those bureaucracies. So that means that one of the main hindrances for bureaucracies to function in Brazil is is red tape, is new rules that are trying to promote accountability. So because there's such a problem with corruption and patronage and clientelism, Brazil actually has a very rigid set of new rules that have tried to combat that. You can only be hired as a bureaucrat if you take a very rigorous civil service exam that requires you to study for months, if not years. Often you have to pay for an exam prep course. You can only be hired based on your results. But it is very hard to hire the foremost experts in the country if you force them to take the civil service exam that requires you um, to have mastery of Portuguese grammar and math and other kinds of things that aren't necessarily related to expertise. So what I've found is that the way... That the most innovative programs in Brazil have gotten around this kind of red tape is that they've entered into an agreement with a U.N. agency and they've drawn up a budget for their bureaucracy and they deposit their money into these U.N. agencies. And now they can escape government rules because technically it's these U.N. agencies that are administering the programs. But it's Brazilian bureaucrats who are making every single decision. And so it's a really interesting new form of outsourcing the state that is not actually just a Brazil story. I think this is a developing world story. And so that's the story that I'm interested in telling in my next book.
1: Awesome. Will you come on the New Books podcast and talk to me about it once you finish that one? Yes, please. Awesome. Um, So today I was talking to Jessica Rich about state-sponsored activism, bureaucrats and social movements in democratic Brazil that is coming out from Cambridge University Press, I think this very week. Um, Jessica,
0: where can somebody get a hold of your book? Well, thus far, the Cambridge University Press website would be a great start. But also at your other major online buying books outlets.
1: Um, But possibly
0: soon near, near us
1: here in Milwaukee at Boswell's.
0: That would be fantastic. Boswell Books is possibly my favorite bookstore that exists, and hopefully it will be carrying my book very soon. Awesome. Thank you for joining me today, Jessica. Thanks for having me.
1: Sure.